Now, the former tennis, American tennis star, um, Jennifer Capriati, was groomed for stardom from a young age. Over the years, as we see her career, we see her rising to the top of tennis. But sadly, she starts picking up injuries, right? The injuries eventually force her out to retire. She retires from the game. And that's when her life starts to spin out of control. She starts struggling to cope with failure. And of course, this leads her to the world of drugs and alcohol until she's eventually hospitalized after a suicide attempt. Now, as the media observes her life, they are puzzled uh, with what's going on, with this implosion of Jennifer Capriati. So one of them decides to go and speak to her uh, after she's released from a psychiatric hospital. The reporter wants to really know what has happened to Capriati, what has happened to that vibrant American superstar? And here is what Capriati said to the reporter. It all started to crumble when I quit playing tennis. After that, I could not figure out who I was. Who am I? What am I for? Why am I here? Those were what she was struggling with. Capriati had put the finger on the problem of life. She didn't know who she was. That's the issue. Tennis no longer defined her, so she had no answer to her identity. Who is Capriati? And as I think about Capriati's story, it reminds me that not knowing your identity can be a matter of life and death. It was for Jennifer Capriati. And I think this is true for every human being, isn't it? Our identity matters. That's why we have identity wars now in society. When we don't know who we truly are, two things usually happen, right? We may spend our lives searching for who we truly are, right? And of course, that robs us of all peace and happiness in life. It's hard work trying to figure out all the time who you are, right? And we see that with people who are on a journey, they like to tell us. And they have no peace, really. Alternatively, what happens is that we spend our lives living as someone else, right? Our life becomes a sham. And that also is a life without peace. And we see many people that take on identities and they let us tell us, oh, I was living as someone else and uh, I had no peace. Living with a confused identity, even a stolen identity, is a terrible thing. It makes your life terrible, doesn't it? We must know who we truly are, and then, not just knowing, we must live out of that identity. This is true in every area of life, and I think it's especially true when it comes to our spiritual life. Now, if you've been with us for a while, you know we are currently in Colossians, right? And this letter of Colossians is divided in two parts, right? Chapter 1, verse 1, to chapter 2, verse 5, is really part 1. And what's that about is that it is is explaining to the church at Colossae who Christ is and who we are in Christ. That part of Colossians only has what we call indicatives. It has no imperative. It's all about, it's just describing. It is saying this is who Christ is, this is who you are in Christ. What it's really setting out is this is your identity now as followers in Christ. So the first part is really the identity section, we might say. From chapter 2, verse 6, all the way to the end, 
What Paul does then is to draw out the implication of this identity. Paul is teaching them how to live out your new identity in Christ. So this part of the letter, therefore, has many commands and laws Paul is laying down uh, for us to obey. But as we read this section, we notice that even in this section, right, the second section, Paul keeps going back to the truth of our identity. His key point in this section, actually, is that living for Christ is not about obeying rules. You are not a Christian because you obey rules. No. Living in Christ is that God gives you a new heart. You become born again. And he gives you a new identity. And out of that identity is what you live out. Right? You live out out of that identity. We must kill sin in our lives. Right? Why? Not because it's going to get us to heaven, but because it is not who we are. We must grow to be like Christ. Compassion, patience, and all these things that the Lord Jesus has. Why? Because it is who we are. We have died to the old self, and we have put on the new self, the new humanity in Christ. We are truly born again. And today we are looking at another passage in this second half of Colossians where Paul underlines this truth again. So if you've been with us for the last few messages in Colossians, they must have probably felt very gloomy. Well, we are entering a very positive, I'll say, section of Colossians. Please look at me there at Colossians chapter 3, uh, verse 12 to 14. I'll just read those words again. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, humility, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, Bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And the Bible is put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Now this morning, this today, in fact, we are focusing on verse 12, morning and evening. And the key message Paul wants us to learn in verse 12, just a part of verse 12, in fact, is that growing in Christ... Is about remembering who you are to God. How do I grow as a Christian? Well, it's about you remembering who you are to God and then living out of that identity. Now, there are three things Paul wants every true follower of Christ to remember about who they are to God. First of all, all believers are chosen. He says that, isn't it? As God's chosen one. The second thing is that all believers are holy. And thirdly, all believers are beloved, right? Now this morning, I want us to look at our identity as God's chosen ones. And this evening, we'll look at our identity as God's holy and beloved, right? And we'll finish that first section of verse 12. My goal this morning is simply this, very simple. I want to encourage you, if you're a true follower of Christ here, I want to encourage you to remember you are chosen by God. Remember you are chosen by God. The key for you to grow in your new life in Christ is to keep remembering that you did not make yourself a Christian. You didn't choose God. God chose you to be in Christ. Put on then, Paul says, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, 
compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. But the key thing there is that we are God's chosen ones. Now, in 2012, the film La La Land, you may remember it, was named at the Oscar ceremony as winner for what? Best Picture. Do you remember that? Mark Platt, you know, led the cast of La La Land to the stage, and then the unthinkable happened. Do you remember what it was? In front of billions, Mark Platt was told, sorry, you have not won. It's a mistake. Moonlight is the winner. And of course, the internet went mad, didn't it? <laughs> Literally, I think. The announcement drew global condemnation. Why was that? Well, because everyone knew just how heartbreaking it must have been for the La La Land cast. To one day be told you have chosen, and the next minute, no, you're a loser. Right? Everyone wants to be the chosen one. We all want to be a winner. To be chosen as someone special, right? It's actually part of how God created us, right? Each person is special to God, even in our fallen sinful state. And when people choose us for something, it is echoing that inner truth, isn't it? That we are unique in some way. But there's a problem, isn't there? The problem is that, as the 2017 Oscar ceremony, shambles as it's been called, demonstrated, most of the things we long to be chosen for in life ultimately disappoints us. We sit for an interview. We are over the moon when we get chosen, only to find out a few months later either we are working for a very terrible boss or, worse, the company is going bankrupt. We were chosen, but it was completely useless in the end. Or we long to be the chosen bride or the chosen groom, right? And we are chosen, right? But when we get married, we may find it is not a bed of roses. And even if our marriage is built on the rock that is Christ, in the end, our marriages never last because death comes to all of us. In the end, all the things we long to be selected for never last, friends. But Paul in this verse is saying there is a choice of us, those who trust in Christ, a choice of us from God that never disappoints. It is this. If you are a true follower of Christ, God chose you in Christ before he created the universe. You did not choose to be a Christian. No one does. No one makes a decision for Christ. You follow Christ because God chose you in Christ before you were born. And everything hinges on that. And this is what Paul means in verse 12, isn't it? Put on then as what? God's chosen ones. He says we are God's chosen ones. It means that God has chosen us before the foundation of the world. Why do I say that? Because Paul says something similar in other letters. For example, Paul says this. Turn with me to Ephesians Chapter 1, we turn, there, we turn to two verses today, Ephesians 1, 3, and later on to 2 Thessalonians in a moment. But turn with me to Ephesians 1, verse 3 to 8. Paul says this, I read from verse 3 to verse 8. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing 
in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us in him. Did you see that? He chose us in him. When? Before the foundation of the world. That we should be holy. Sounds familiar. And blameless before him. In love. Familiar again. We are the beloved. In love he predestined us for adoptions as sons through Jesus Christ. According to the purpose of his will. To the praise of his glorious grace. Which he has blessed us in the beloved. That is Christ. In him that is Christ we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses. According to the riches of his grace. Which he lavished upon us. In all wisdom and insight. What is Paul saying there to the Ephesians? Paul is saying to the Ephesians. You are followers of Christ because our God chose you before he created the universe. Before the foundation of the world. Right? God chose you what? To become his beloved children in Christ. His adopted children. He did this before man was created. And that means he did this before sin entered the world. Think of that. That is how far back God chose you in Christ. And God did this out of the infinite abundance of his uninfluenced love for us. It is not something we deserve, says Paul. It is all because of his love and mercy to the praise of his glorious grace, he says. Now, Paul says something similar in 2 Thessalonians. You can turn there if you can get there quickly. I haven't got a page. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13 to 15. There, he, he says something similar, and I'll read it for us. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers and sisters, loved by the Lord. Why? Because God chose you as the first fruits to be served through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he says, So then, brothers and sisters, of course, stand firm and alter the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. What is Paul saying to the Thessalonians? He's saying God chose you. And he means in eternity past, because here, of course, he's speaking both choosing and calling, as we shall see in a moment. God chose you in eternity past because he loves you. This love for you is also what made God put, if you like, flesh and bones on the eternal choice of you. By God coming in Christ to die on that cross to save you, Paul is saying. It is because God chose you, that is why God the Spirit opened your hearts to hear the good news of Christ. And enabled you to repent and follow Christ. You are chosen by God so that your life would glorify and honor God, Paul is saying. And so that you can share in the blessing of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ, Paul says. To this he called you through our gospel, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, every blessing you have as a believer in Christ is as a result of you being chosen by God in Christ. You are saved and you are being kept in Christ. Because you are God's chosen one. Now, for some professing Christians, 
Some true believers, I think, reject this truth. They struggle to believe this truth. Their pride, human pride, prevents them from agreeing to the word of God. They say, God didn't choose me. I chose God out of my willpower. I am a follower of Christ and my neighbor is not because I exercised my choice. Now a lot of eyes there, isn't it? They won't admit it, dear friends. But what they actually believe is salvation by works. You see, either God takes all the steps to serve us in Christ, or we help God out along the way. If we help God to serve us even by 0.0000001%, then it is not salvation by grace. It is salvation by works. It is not the true gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is the gospel of man that sends people to hell. Human beings cannot choose God. Because all of us by nature are spiritual corpses buried six feet in the eternal casket of our sin and rebellion against God. The Bible teaches that every human being is totally depraved by nature. What that means is that everything about us is corrupted by sin. Sin has corrupted our minds. We can think right. Sin has corrupted our will. We can choose God. Um, Sin has corrupted our thinking, emotions, our desires. Everything is tainted by sin. And you know, we are not just corrupt. We are born with no spiritual life with God. We are born hostile to God, guilty and under the wrath and judgment of God. There is no natural desire in us to turn to God. The Bible says we are all by nature children of wrath. And we are all by nature children of the devil. Ephesians 2, 1 to 3. We follow the, by nature the prince of the power of the earth. You know, none of us desire to live for God. King David said that, didn't he, in Psalm 14, uh, verse 2 to 3, the Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any, just anyone who understands, who seeks after God. And the Lord's conclusion is this. They have, all of them, turned aside, all humanity together, They have become corrupt. There is none who does good. Listen to this. There is none who does good to commend. It's why people don't do good things. Some people do good things, but there is nothing you can do good to commend yourself to God. Not even one person. See, the only way for us to have any life with God is for God to first do what? Regenerate us. What do we mean by that? It means God must first, we are corpses, right? A corpse can't do anything, spiritual corpse. God, God must first breathe life into us by his grace. He must make us born again. And you need to understand this. You cannot repent and have faith in Christ until God first makes you born again. Did you hear that? 
You are born again before you repent and trust in Christ. After God breathes new life into you, that's regeneration, being born again, as the Lord Jesus talked about in John 3, then you are given the gift of faith to believe in Christ. Ephesians 2 verse 8 says salvation is a gift of grace, isn't it? It's not everything we have done. How is that possible? Well, it is because the Holy Spirit must first breathe life into us. And as we have new life from God, then we have faith to believe. Because faith is a fruit. It's not our production. It's something that comes from God. And as we have faith in God, we then repent of our sins. So faith and repentance is the result of our new birth. We repent when God opens our hearts and gives us a gift of faith to trust in the Lord Jesus. You need to understand that because I think it's one of the biggest errors that is taught by people. That you are born again after you repent. That's a misunderstanding of, human, of what, our fallen nature. You are born again before you repent and trust in Christ. And the whole born again process, the wind, the, the, the wind blows wherever it pleases. So the Holy Spirit must decide by his own volition, by his own decision, to who to regenerate. And so the point is that God first must choose us, isn't it? And this brings us to a very difficult truth for us to understand. The ultimate reason some people die without being born again is that God chose not to regenerate them. People don't become believers not because the gospel is too weak, to serve them. There is power in the gospel, enough power to serve any sinner. They do not refuse to, they refuse not to trust in God, not because of bad preaching either. Ultimately, yes, there's bad preaching, yes, of course. And I've preached bad sermons myself. But that's not the reason people don't turn to God. It's not even because God has somehow forgotten them. No. People ultimately, in the final analysis, do not turn to God because God, in his own sovereign wisdom and purpose, saw it fit in eternity past not to appoint them to be in Christ. Even though God loves them and has blessed them in so many ways, he has seen it fit not to place them in Christ to enjoy his saving love. In him. They are reprobate in life by the sovereign decree of God which passed over them. Now, God, beloved, is not the author of their sin, but he is in control over all things, including their sin. They are genuinely responsible for their rejection of Christ. And yet, it is also true that they are going to hell because God decreed for them not to be rescued by Christ. The decree is not for sending them there. The decree is not to be rescued by Christ. They were running away from God and deserving of his mercy. God chose not to stop them. Now, this is a hard truth, isn't it? The doctrine of God's election and the doctrine of reprobation. Do you believe it? That's the question. It is a hard truth. And it fills us with questions. Questions such as this. How can God just leave some sinners in their sin? 
Why let people go to hell? Why is the love we read about in John 3.16? For God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son, whosoever believes in him not perish but have eternal life. Where is that? Now God, of course, knew we have such questions. And he answers them in the passage we read at the start. That's why we read it. So we don't have to read it again, because we have little time. Particularly if you zone in on Romans 9, verse 14 to 26, there, we don't have time to go through it today, otherwise we'll be here the whole day. I'll leave it for you to scan it and to study it this evening for yourself, perhaps this afternoon, over a cup of coffee. But in a nutshell, the Apostle Paul there gives us three answers to all the worries and concerns that you have. All these questions you're asking. Where is God's love? How can God do this? Three answers. Okay? First answer. God is sovereign. You are not. He doesn't owe us an explanation. Who? An explanation. Who are you, O man? Paul asks. Who are you? That's really the Lord asking. Who are you? God is sovereign. It is arrogant for us to question him about these things. Us asking God why some people go to hell is a bit like a dog asking the owner to explain why they are moving houses. We are just a dog. Honestly, less than a dog before God. He's infinitely greater than us. We are owned by him. And he's way, 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 way infinitely above us. So, first answer Paul gives there, if you study it, you find God is sovereign. The second answer is that even if God told us, we would not understand his ways. Paul says it's like the lifeless clay trying to understand the potter. His ways are not your ways. His understanding is not your understanding. His understanding is unsearchable. The third answer is this, and it is humbling. God exists only for his glory. Everything he does is is for his own good pleasure. God doesn't exist for us. We exist for him. And God has glory in heaven and in hell. God does not take pleasure in the death of the wicked. The Bible is clear. But the Bible is also clear that God is glorified in his attribute of justice. So God in hell is glorified as sinners are punished. That, in a nutshell, is Paul's answer in Romans 9. But there's one more thing we must quickly add, isn't it? This truth does not take away our human responsibility. The Bible is clear that even though God controls every single detail of your life, you are not a robot. The Bible is clear about that. The decisions you make are genuinely your decision. And that is to say, God, when we say God is sovereign, we are saying God exercises his sovereignty over human beings without injuring their human will. So you are responsible for your sin, even though God controls every decision you make. How does that work? I don't know. But God does. 
And my responsibility is to believe and trust his word. Not to try and get to the bottom of God. I can't figure him out. There's more we can say about this subject, and please feel free to come and talk to me about it afterwards. We must move on. The key point is this. That Paul is making here. Only those who are chosen by God have life with God, and we have life with God, if we are true followers of Christ. If you are a follower of Jesus, you have life with God. As verse 12 says, put on then as God's chosen one. And the key thing you need to know and love and appreciate is that your life with God has been in the making before the universe was created. Oh, whatever is going on in the world, in your life right now, let that sink in, isn't it? You are the reason God the Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, put on the rags of human flesh. You are the reason he came. Christ came to turn God's eternal choice of you into your lived reality in the here and now. Christ didn't come on a trial and error mission. That maybe if he does well, some people will be saved, some won't. No, Christ came because he had you in mind from eternity past. He came specifically for you. Let that sink in regardless of what is going on in your life. Yes, there are a lot of things you don't understand about the decrees of God, right? But understand this truth, beloved, that you are chosen from eternity past. You are the reason Christ came. Our Lord Jesus died on the cross and rose from the grave to bring you home. As his already chosen member of his family. And he did it so that you could bask in his love and glory. Not just in this world, but in the world to come. And all of this is not because of anything you have done. It was a pure, sovereign, and uninfluenced act of God. God's choice of you was an, an outflow of this gorgeous, self-existent love within the Holy Trinity. Now, there are many applications. We could be here the whole day applying this truth to our lives. But we must stay within the context. The Bible talks about this truth in many passages. But why here? Why is Paul talking about this truth here in Colossians 3 verse 12? Well, the answer is in front of us, isn't it? Put on then as God's chosen one, he says, verse 12. Holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness and meekness and patience bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all, this put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. What is Paul saying? Paul is saying the key to putting off sin and putting on the fruits of the Spirit, listed in verse 12 to 14, is to keep remembering you are chosen by God. And I will even say, whatever you are facing in your life, are you brokenhearted? Keep remembering this truth. This is the answer. How does remembering that we are chosen by God help us to grow in Christ? Well, three quick things, and they're on your outline. First, remembering this truth grows our love for God. It grows our love. You know why Satan hates this truth? Because he knows this truth grows our love for God. 
This truth says to me, I am not the author of my salvation. I bring nothing to God except my sin. All that I am comes from God. He chose me, have no basis to boast. It is all about him. And you know, the more I remember this truth, the more I love him. It moves my heart to worship and praise him for his infinite love, power, glory, and wisdom. And the more I love God, the more I hate what God hates. The more I'm driven to kill the sins in verse 5 to 9, which we talked about. Anger, wrath, slander, malice, sexual sin. All those sins which destroy our life together. And the more I love God, the more I love what God loves. The more my heart is moved to be kind, humble, meek, patient, forgive. Are you struggling with forgiveness? Remember this truth. This is the answer. So this truth, remembering this truth grows our love for God. The second thing this truth does is remembering your God's chosen changes how you see yourself. It changes how you see yourself. You begin to see your identity more in Christ and not the world. Are you running after the world? You need to remember this truth. That's the, that's the antidote. The more you see your identity is rooted in who you are in Christ as his chosen, the more you'll be motivated to live for Christ. Our identity is a driving force of what we do in life. Our identity drives our motivation, right? Motivation drives action. And action drives results, doesn't it? For example, think about this. Imagine you're on a motorway, right? You're on a motorway. And someone drives past you very fast, you know, 120 miles an hour. They're breaking the speed limit by, I don't know, what is that, 40, right? They're driving very fast. Do you chase them? Do you, I know you may have issues with your car, but do you, if your car is very good, some of you are very good cars, do you try and chase them? Of course not. You don't chase them and tell them off. Why not? Because you don't have an identity that says, I am a police officer. So you have no incentive or drive whatsoever to do anything. And I bet you don't even call up. <laughs> you don't take the number plate down. You just move on. Now, if a police officer was there, on the other hand, you were a police officer, right? You would have the identity, isn't it? And therefore, you'd have the motivation to immediately run after them. You'd chase the driver. And you get the result of arresting them. Do you see? Every action we take in life has a sense of identity behind it, right? And the identity behind it, rather, means that we are motivated to do things that we wouldn't do without that identity. How we see ourselves matters. And this is true, especially in our life with Christ. The more you remember you are chosen by God, the more you desire to do things that are consistent with your true identity as God's chosen. You have a fresh desire to live out your new humanity in Christ. Now, some people worry when they hear this truth. They say, oh, doesn't this truth just promote sin? Quite the opposite. I hope you've sinned. It's quite the opposite. It motivates us to kill sin. Because our love for God grows and our desire to live out in practice who truly are is the happiest thing we can be. The more we are who we are in Christ, the more we live out who we are in Christ, the happier we become. Knowing this truth won't lead you to love sin, it will lead you to hate sin. 
You will not live for the world because what can the world offer you that Christ has not offered you? Nothing. You're struggling with sin because you feel you need love. What is the antidote? The antidote is to remember you already loved. We talk about that this evening. The antidote is to remember you are chosen. Chosen why? So for love and holiness. You have all you need in Christ. The final thing is that remembering you're chosen by God changes how you relate to other followers of Christ. This is a big part of what Paul is saying here. Put on then as God's chosen one, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts to one another, kindness to one another, be full of humbleness towards each other, be meek, be patient, bear with one another, forgive each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all, it's put on love, Paul says, which binds everything in perfect harmony. Do you see? It changes how we relate to one another. You, we see them as God's elect as well. Now think about this. The church at Colossae was not perfect. It's not perfect, right? We have seen some of the sins that Paul is concerned about. It troubles him that some in the church at Colossae are divisive. Some are angry at others. Others have malice. Some are slandering others. Some are gossipers at Colossae. Others are unforgiving there. And sadly, there is even sexual immorality at Colossae. The world has invaded this young, vibrant church. And it's most likely that Pastor Paul is heartbroken. Every pastor would. And that's why he warns them in verse 5 of chapter 3 about the wrath of God. We had a sermon about that. You know, Paul is not interested in sweeping sin under a Colossian rag. Nah. He calls sin out. And he warns them that they must show true evidence of a changed life. They must make their calling and election sure. If they don't have a changed life, they can be sure they are still going to hell. And yet Paul knows the answer, doesn't he? He knows that the problems they are facing at Colossae will not be solved by sermons about the fear of hell. He mentions the wrath of God, but that's not his main point here. Paul knows what they really need is to know who they are in Christ. If they are to keep growing together, they must see each other as God's chosen ones. Each other. So in verse 12, it reminds them that this is the big picture. See each other as God's chosen one. See each other as holy people, as God's beloved. Paul is saying to them, keep remembering this truth that you have been chosen by God because it's going to grow your kindness and love for each other. Keep remembering this truth that you're chosen by God because it's going to make you humble, it's going to make you meek before God, and this in turn will make you patient and forgiving of other believers. You keep remembering this truth and you're going to have peace among you. Why? Because you remember that God has chosen you from eternity past together. You have been joined at the hip, a spiritual hip as it were, from eternity past. You remember that you are God's elect family before the ages began. Imagine that. Not a family that starts now. You are part of a family that started in eternity and will run to eternity. The more you remember this truth, the more you appreciate just how deep your spiritual ties are. Beloved, 
I mean, can you see why Satan hates this truth of God's election? Can you see why in every age, Satan has raised people in the church to oppose this truth? Satan hates this truth because he knows when we remember this glorious truth of God's choice of us in Christ, it destroys any sin that seeks to ruin the church. Here is the answer to the Lord's prayer, isn't it? The the, the high priestly prayer of Christ. When you pray that they may all be one, how do we become one? By remembering these truths, said Paul. When we truly believe this truth of God's choice of us, we cannot help but stop demonizing, demonizing other believers. Because all followers of Christ are eternal family. We cannot help but love one another and serve each other in Christ. We cannot help but pray and labor to protect each other. That's the point Paul is making. Growing in Christ is by remembering that you are chosen. So how do we do it? I'll be very brief. Two minutes, right? I promise. How do we actually do the remembering? Well, the other way to ask that question is, how did Paul expect the Colossians to grow in remembering this truth? That's what we need to ask. What's his answer? Well, he wrote the letter to them. By reading this letter, in fact, when he comes to the end of chapter 4, he's going to say, have this letter read also at Laodicea. In other words, Paul has written this word of God so that we can keep reading it. And as we read it, we keep remembering it. So the answer to you remembering this truth is that keep reading the word. Keep rereading the word of God. Right? Keep hearing the Bible preached. Not just in the morning, have a hunger to hear it also in the evening. So that you can be reminded that you are God's people, that you are chosen one, you are holy, you are beloved. Let this truth warm your heart. And pray to God to give you a true listening heart. Pray that God would make you truly love this truth in your inner being. Beloved, not just in your head. Not just in your head. What good is reading Calvin, Spurgeon, Watson, Boston, Parker, Piper? What good is reading all of these things if it's just going into our heads and not changing our hearts? Oh, beloved, God is not after more knowledge. You have enough knowledge. You have amassed enough libraries. You've got enough YouTube videos. God isn't after more knowledge. God is after changed hearts. Changed hearts. We know enough, beloved. What we lack is simple and sincere obedience to God. What you get just here in this church is sufficient with the Bible you've got to grow you for eternity. The issue is no volume or quantity. The issue is, and I'm not against more knowledge. My library itself, my wife will tell you, uh, I'm sure, <laughs> uh, yeah, it's, it's too much money has been spent on it. Um, some of it I'll never read. Um, So knowledge is good, but that's not what God is after. So don't seek after more knowledge. Seek after Christ. Seek to know him and the power of his resurrection. Seek to love the mighty God, the Prince of Peace, the everlasting Father. Him. Take time to be holy with him. Finally, and I'll end here. I think it's more than two minutes. What we also need to do is to, remember, to keep reminding one another. I just want to say this letter was not written to an individual. 
We forget so much of that when we read that. This letter was written to a church, and the reason for that is they were meant to remember it together. They were meant to encourage one another. And that means we are meant to talk about this content among ourselves. We need to do the same. And if I had more time, I would even say, keep speaking. I would even say more about how we need to keep speaking this truth pastorally to one another. Because that struggling brother, what they need to hear is this truth. That they are chosen by God. And as they are reminded of that, they will repent of their sin. And they renew communion with the Lord. The person who is weak and helpless in the hospital, our brother Michael, when you visit him, well, he needs to hear the doctrines of grace. He needs to hear that, yes, things look bad in the hospital, but he's chosen by the Lord. And all will be well in the end. This truth must be spoken. It must be the basis of how we care and love one another. The people that are at war against each other in the life of the church, and they will always be, right? They need to hear that both of them are chosen by God, if they truly know him. And that they have been a family from way back. And they will be a family way forward in eternity. That's how we help one another pastorally. So let us keep remembering and help one another to remember. All true followers of Christ are chosen by God to the praise of his glorious grace. Amen.